Let's join together in prayer. Let's pray. We are thankful, Heavenly Father, that we have such a story to tell today. And as we think upon John's account of the resurrection, we pray that it would really speak to our hearts and live there within us, that we might go from here with our hearts on fire. We pray it in his name. Amen. There are many instances in history and daily life that tell us that truth is often stranger than fiction. Here's one example. English politician and justice of the peace, Sir Edmund Berry Godfrey, was found murdered on October 17, 1678. His body had been left in a ditch on Greenberry Hill in London. Three men were arrested and tried for the crime. Their names were Robert Green, Henry Berry and Lawrence Hill. Just in case you missed it, the murder took place on Greenberry Hill. Add to, this, add to that this one in 2014, a missing woman on a holiday in Iceland found, was found, I should say, was found when it was discovered that she was in the search party looking for herself. It's also a fact that there are half the number of Lego minifigures than there are people in the world. That is to say, there are four billion little mini Lego figures in the world. Four billion. But I like this one. A number of years ago, the UK's Ministry of Defence made public some secret files which contained details of, of an amazing secret weapon which was seriously considered for use during the Cold War. This secret weapon was so fearsome that it would re- reduce enemy countries to their knees simply because it would slip in and out of enemy lands without being seen and was undetectable to radar. What was this terrifying and awesome secret which would wreak havoc on any potential enemy, this fearsome and devastating weapon? It was the common pigeon. Believe it or not, during the 1940s, the government's air ministry had a special pigeon section run by wing commander, good joke, William Rayner, who devised a plan whereby pigeons could be trained to fly into enemy territory with a small explosive device carrying deadly poison strapped to their backs. Pigeons would be flown in a plane over enemy lines, released so they would fly to their destinations and let go their deadly cargo. Now on first hearing the story, it sounds totally unbelievable. Pigeons carrying weapons of mass destruction? And you have just heard the story, may well consider that you've been had. After all, you weren't there and I wasn't there either. And it's just been April Fool's Day. And given that, you might well be thinking you need evidence before you'll believe it. 
Well, there is evidence on the UK National Archive website. With that, you may make up your mind whether or not you will take the story on board or leave it go. The same issue is laid out before us in our reading this morning from John's Gospel. What about murders or missing people or Lego figures or pigeons? But about someone far more important and about an event that is said to have happened that, if true, makes it the most important event in the history of the world. Many, of course, doubt the things that John recorded as ever happening. I can understand that. They weren't there. You and I weren't there. A man rising from the dead is far more improbable than any pigeons carrying weapons of mass destruction. So what and where is the evidence? This morning we jump headlong into John 20. On Friday we're in John chapter 19 where Jesus was laid in a tomb very dead and now John resumes the scene for us just before dawn on the Sunday following. Not much is said about the Saturday upon which Jesus lay in the tomb because it was the Jewish Sabbath and the Sabbath-keeping rules forbade work on that day and that certainly included the embalming of dead bodies. But on the Sunday, the first day of the week, as the dawn broke, all that changed and John described the scene at the tomb and in doing so brings us to three individuals, to Mary, to Peter and John who were presented with matters that they also had trouble believing. And their story unfolds in these three things that John points out for us. First, John tells us of the conclusions over a moved stone. In verses 1 to 2, John brings to our attention the actions of one of the women who had been there with Jesus at the cross, Mary Magdalene, who features quite prominently in John's resurrection account. Mary had gone with others, though they're not mentioned in John's Gospel, with others so that they might complete the preparations for a proper burial for Jesus. Joseph and Nicodemus didn't have the time to do the job and the women, out of their devotion to Jesus, wanted to finish the task. Luke's Gospel tells that as they walked that morning before dawn, while it was still dark, they'd been asking each other, what are we going to do about the entrance to the tomb and the stone that's rolled across it? They obviously at this stage did not expect nor anticipate meeting Jesus alive, even though Jesus had spoken so much about it. In, John, in John's record, this comes out quite strongly in the conclusion that Mary jumped to after seeing the stone had been moved. Verse 2 records her words to the disciples, they have taken away his body and we don't know where they have laid him. Now instead of telling you that Mary should have known better, I would rather tell you that her response to the open tomb was entirely a natural one. There was no thought in her mind that Jesus would be alive and if the tomb was open, the stone rolled away and the guards were gone, it would be natural to conclude from the evidence that the Romans had decided to move the body of Jesus for security's sake. Mary's conclusion was right and natural but it was at the same time 
the wrong conclusion, wasn't it? Who's if, who of us have never jumped to a conclusion prematurely? Thought something about someone on the evidence you had before you only to realise later that you had it all wrong. I'd be surprised if anyone here can say you've never done that. I certainly have. And I say that they're, they're because there's a long line of people in the scriptures that do that constantly. Beginning with Adam and Eve. Now surely they jumped to the conclusion that the serpent was speaking the truth to them, not lying. Joseph may have jumped to the conclusion that he was as good as dead when sold into slavery by his brothers and later thrown into jail. Moses certainly jumped to the wrong conclusions when God called him out of the burning bush and he responded with a, I can't do what you're asking me to do, I can't do it. The disciples suffered from this malaise when Jesus said in the face of the 5,000 strong crowd to them, you give them something to eat. And they thought that they were meant to go and spend some money and do some shopping. And now here's Mary falling for the same trap. It's the easiest trap to fall into, don't you think? After all, for her, there was probably, as I said, zero expectation that Jesus would live again. And her eyes told her the tomb was empty. To be convinced that Jesus was alive would take more evidence for Mary, wouldn't it? As John later tells us about. Secondly, all that led in verses 3 to 10, we read of some confusion over a missing body. After Mary had told the disciples of the news, Peter and John instantly set out on foot to check it out for themselves. Uh, John is the other disciple mentioned in the text and he records that he ran faster than Peter and reached the tomb first without going in while Peter, who may have been a bit older, not as old as our Peter, but a little bit older, and maybe a little bit less fit than John, arrived after him went straight into the tomb and looked around at everything. What Peter saw inside the tomb is carefully recorded by John. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the cloth for the head carefully rolled up and lying in a place by itself, but certainly saw no body of Jesus. Now John notes these because this amounts to evidence that is and was important. A grave robbers of those days did not usually leave a tidy little pile of clothes. In fact, with the amount of spices that would have been upon the body already, it would also almost be impossible to unwrap the body and not leave the cloths damaged in some way. And then John came in and John says of himself, he saw, in other words, I saw with my eyes, And I believed. Now a little bit of Greek is useful in this instance. John is using three different Greek words for seeing in verses 5, 6 and 8 and we ought to know about them. In verse 5 the word simply means to glance in. 
And this is what John did from his position outside the tomb. He had a quick look, a men's look, you know. I can't see that in the fridge. In verse 6, in verse six the word means to look carefully, to observe. And this is what Peter did from inside the tomb. But in verse 8, the word means to perceive with intelligent comprehension. It's far different than a quick look. And this is what John did when he saw the evidence. So when John says in verse 8, he saw and believed, what was it that John believed? Well, surely it cannot be that Jesus was alive, for verse 9 records, yet, as yet, the penny had not dropped about that at all. So it must mean that they believed what Mary had said. Her testimony, the evidence of the empty tomb, the discarded grave clothes, would now mean that Mary's conclusions were believable. And verse 9 tells us, at this point they did still not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. The fact that Jesus was alive should not have come as a big surprise to his closest followers, should it? Not only did he predict it before it happened, but the Old Testament also predicted it. Like we would read in Psalm 16, that the Messiah, the Holy One, would never see decay. But these things were hidden from them at the time through ignorance, just as they remain hidden to many still, who in ignorance refuse to believe the testimony of God's word. Third, in verses 11 to 18, John tells us of confirmation for a mourning believer. After Peter and John had returned back to the other disciples, in verse 10, Mary is left outside the tomb, still weeping, still, no doubt, stuck upon the conclusions that she had earlier reached about the body being stolen or moved or taken away. But in her grief, one more look inside the tomb changes all that, for there are two angels now sitting inside the tomb that neither she nor Peter nor John had seen before. Perhaps because of her tears, she didn't notice that they were angels. And her brief conversation with them gave her no relief from the implications of the conclusions that she reached. All she wanted was to find the body of Jesus and complete what she had at first set out to do. Two verses from the Proverbs and Psalms apply well to Mary weeping by the tomb. Proverbs 8.17 says, I love them that love me, and those that seek me early shall find me. Psalm 30 verse 5, weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Still in her grief, Mary turned to find a man behind her, not knowing that it was Jesus who asked her the reason for her tears. And again, Mary came out with this conclusion she had reached. And then he spoke her name. He did not rebuke her 
He spoke her name. And then she knew. And reading between the lines would mean that it would be right to assume that Mary fell before him and clung to him with all her might, which was a very natural gesture, for she had lost him and now she had found him and she didn't want to let go of him again. Here was the confirmation that Mary needed, not even expecting that he was alive, there he was right before her eyes. This meant that the discarded grave clothes had not meant the theft of the body. Those conclusions she had reached were wrong, for there in front of her was the living explanation of all that had happened. And so she clung to him. With these words, he responded, which needs some thought and explanation. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. Why did Jesus insist that Mary let him go? One reason could be that she had no reason to panic that she was not going to see him again. For Jesus would be on earth 40 more days before ascending into heaven. Another reason could be that she now had a job to do, which he soon instructed her to go and do. Go tell the other disciples, don't stay here clinging onto my feet. Go and do the work of telling my disciples that I'm alive. The third reason may well be that Mary had to learn that he had arisen and appeared not only for her sake, but also for those who would believe through her testimony. Well, we began by thinking about facts that sound ridiculous or impossible, but are in fact true. And that's where I want to take this back to. See, what we have here is in John's account is a collection of the evidence. He was an eyewitness, as was Mary, as was Peter, that the stone had been rolled away, the body was not there, that Jesus appeared alive to Mary and we know later on in John's Gospel also to the rest of the twelve or the eleven. Now think this through. If John was making this up, why would he include Mary in the story? The testimony of women was not even allowed to be given in the courtrooms of the day. And why would he paint himself, both himself and the Apostle Peter, in such a poor light as men who needed convincing proof that he was alive? Something which Jesus most kindly would give later on. And how is it that the account he ended up putting together of this supposed resurrection went unchallenged by the Jews or by the Romans at the time it all happened, or even later on. See, the truth may sound strange, but that doesn't disqualify it from being the truth, does it? So does it matter? And what does it matter? Well, the world might consider this something of a non-event, 
Just give us holidays. We don't care if he rose or he didn't rise. Could be the catch cry of some. But as I said earlier, when you consider that Jesus said he would be raised again and the truth of the gospel that rises or falls with the resurrection, when everything including our salvation hinges upon this fact, then this is something that needs to be settled. This is the most important event in all the world. If a man came back from the dead and is still alive. You might think it was easy for Peter and John and Mary. Mary believed because she saw and Peter and John would later see and believe also. We know that John believed because at the end of the book he wrote, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And so what response is called for? Well, when Paul preached the message of the resurrection at Athens in our second reading this morning, The responses were quite stark. On the one hand, some mocked. On the other hand, some said, we'll hear you again about this. But in the middle of those two responses were those who believed. See, this is how it is with facts. You can't go back 2,000 years to verify if this did or didn't happen. You can't do that. All you can do is take the eyewitness testimony of those who were there and meet their reporting of these truths with faith. Faith is the key, isn't it? Faith in the evidence, which is the testimony of Scripture, as a faithful record of eyewitness accounts. But to many, faith is so, so hard, so, so wishy-washy. To many, faith is, as Alice said in Alice in Wonderland, not this Alice, believing six impossible things before breakfast. That's not faith. To others, perhaps, faith is about a blind leap in the dark, usually flying in the face of the evidence. But none of these are what the Bible means by faith when it speaks about faith. In fact, it defines it this way, Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is taking those who were there at their word. And so taking God at his word. Faith is not only trusting God, but trusting what God has said. And depending what he has told us about Jesus and the resurrection. No, we can't go to the empty tomb and see what Mary, Peter and John saw. And we ought not be fooled by those who say, if I could see that empty tomb, if I'd been there, if I could see those grave clothes, then I would believe. I say that because there were many, including Peter and John and probably even some of the Jews, who saw the empty tomb and still did not believe. We need to be clear on this as we come to an end, that it's not the want of or the lack of evidence 
for the resurrection that keeps people from believing in the resurrection. Instead, it's just not wanting to believe in the resurrection, despite the evidence. It is committed unbelief that will mean the evidence of the empty tomb is largely, widely ignored by the world. But to those who put their faith in these things, there is much to gain. Romans 10, 9-10 For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, what's the outcome? You'll be saved. Today, can you say that you've done that? And if you haven't, why not? And why not do it today? For whoever does that, they will never ever be put to shame. The facts demand that we put our faith in him who not only claimed to be, but proved to be the Son of God, Lord of life and death. And that truth need not be stranger than fiction, but a living hope that brings you much joy and peace in believing. Is your hope in him raised from the dead? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we read your word and sometimes it is stranger than fiction. We see things that are hard to swallow, but so vital that we do. We thank you for the gospel records that all combine wonderfully, beautifully, to speak of him who was raised from the dead on this Easter Sunday. Thank you that you are willing to receive doubters and questioners and those who need more information. And we pray that as we ourselves have been blessed with the hearing and the preaching of the word of God this morning, that you would help to settle the matter with each one individually here. That our hope might be in the one who was put on the cross for us, was raised from the dead for us, one whom we will meet face to face one day and must give an account of ourselves and whether or not we believe the testimony that was written about him. We pray this for the world in general but also for people we know outside of the kingdom of God that they too might have hope in him through repentance and faith in his name. We ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.